producers or directors or writers or anyone at the studio could look through this book as they were thinking of casting a film. This is Dara Jaffe, Associate Curator at the Academy Museum. In the last episode, we learned that this is how casting worked in the studio system of the classic Hollywood era. Actors were under contract to studios and separated into a prescriptive set of categories. Studio heads, producers, and directors could flip through a book to see what options they had to choose from. Another thing we really wanted to point out with the Academy Players Directory is that for the first several issues, it was segregated. In this episode, we're going to explore what the casting process within the studio system and going back to the silent era meant for non-white actors. There was a section for African-American actors and there was a section for Asian actors. And it was desegregated after a few years, but almost all of the actors from those sections immediately went into the character actor section. So it was clear that they were not going to be considered for leading roles. And even from looking at the headshots that are submitted, you can see what kind of racially stereotyped roles they would have been expected to be up for. It was important to us throughout the museum to bring a critical lens to the problematic histories of the film industry. And we certainly wanted to note any time our organization was complicit. The original 1937 issue of the Academy Players Directory, the physical book that cataloged actors, is currently on display at the Academy Museum. We have literally turned the page of the Players Directory a few times just to give our visitors a couple different example moments. The page that is currently open right now shows actor Noble Johnson. And interestingly, though Noble Johnson was African-American, he is in the characters and comedians section even before the issue was desegregated. And this is especially interesting because there were times in his career where he did pass, where perhaps his ethnicity was ambiguous. And the fact that he is not in the section that is meant to be segregated for African-American actors is very notable and says a lot about the nature of his career at that time. What a Godspeed! This is Noble Johnson in the 1930 film adaptation of Moby Dick. What does he say that I can't hear? He played Queequeg, a native Pacific Islander, opposite John Barrymore as Captain Ahab. Him say you find white whale soon now. You lying to me again, Ethan? Him no. In the 1932 film The Mummy, he played a Nubian servant of the Egyptian high priest Imhotep, played by Boris Karloff. Let the deed be done. He's ordered to kill the reincarnation of the mummy's lover, played by Zita Johan. Let me go! Let me go! Don't kill me! Comedy! Comedy! Come on, Skipper. Make him a friendly speech. In the first King Kong movie from 1933, Johnson played a native chief of Tropical Skull Island. Tropical! Tropical! He understands you, Skipper. What does he say? Telling us to get out. Hello there. I'm looking for the chief. I'm Nogura, head man of the village. Glad to know you. In one of his last films, 
1950s North of the Great Divide with Roy Rogers. He played a Native American chief. We're going to be a big help to you people. I'm building a cannery here just a couple of hundred yards down the river. The cannery will take all the fish from the river. Oh, don't you worry about that. There'll always be plenty left for everybody, I promise you. Then we'll be your friends. I'm sure you and will. And in the Academy directory on display at the museum, next to a standard headshot, Johnson is shown in native dress of unspecified origin. Colored men had no chance to be a star because the white firms never had any colored actors. The only reason my brother got in, he never got in as a colored man, was because of his ability as a makeup artist. This is from the transcript of a 1967 interview with George P. Johnson, Noble Johnson's younger brother. It was conducted as part of UCLA's oral history program. Here, Elliot 89.3 All Things Considered host Austin Cross is reading from the interview transcript. In his first picture, he was an Indian. He made a perfect Indian. At Universal, out of 50 pictures, I don't think he played a Negro part in more than three. As a great makeup artist, he made up as an Indian or as a West Indian or a South American or pretty near anything they wanted to make up. Then he got in all those big pictures. But he didn't get in there as a Negro. He got in there as an actor. Welcome to the Academy Museum Podcast. This season, Close Up on Casting. I'm Museum Director and President Jacqueline Stewart. In this episode, Typecasting and the Studio System, The Case of Noble Johnson. How the first Black movie star created roles for himself in some of the earliest Black-produced films made for Black audiences, but rose to mainstream fame playing characters of nearly every race but his own. Have we ever considered the Negro in pictures other than in comedy roles that the showing of a six-reel dramatic production featuring colored actors and actresses in serious roles is attracting more than usual interest along film row? This is from a 1921 Los Angeles Evening Herald review of By Right of Birth, a film produced by the Lincoln Motion Picture Company and written by Johnson's brother, George. The company was formed in Los Angeles in 1915 by Noble Johnson, who served as president, and a small group of other founding members, black and white, while Johnson was still working as an actor for Universal. The aim was to make so-called race films for black audiences. And early on, George, Noble's brother, came on to market and distribute their films across the country. You couldn't use a distribution company to distribute your pictures? There wasn't any. Now that handled colored pictures. This, again, from the transcript of an interview conducted by UCLA oral historians in 1967 with George P. Johnson at his home in Los Angeles. You mean the white organizations? Oh, the whites wouldn't handle it at the time. Did you attempt to deal with any of the distribution companies? Did you approach them? Oh, yes, we approached them. But, of course, at that time, we were the first company to make a standard, high-class picture. Now, that's where we lost money. If we'd started out and made a lot of slapstick, chicken-eating, watermelon Negro pictures like they'd been making, and then gradually went into our type of picture, but then 
We made something that had never been made before. We were the first company to make a picture, a drama of this type. And that's why we had the trouble. We were pioneers. And the pioneers always lose. That first film by the Lincoln Motion Picture Company is called The Realization of a Negro's Ambition. It's a 1916 film starring Noble Johnson that, like the majority of silent films, has been lost. Another film the Lincoln Company produced that year, just a year after the hugely popular racist propaganda film The Birth of a Nation was released, was The Trooper of Troop K. For years, that film was also thought to have been lost to history. That is, until a fragment of it was identified just last year by Indiana University cinema and media studies scholar Kara Kadu. And it's the only footage that we have of Noble Johnson in a race film, which is, that's really extraordinary. And it now stands as the oldest surviving footage of a film produced by a Black film company that's known to exist. It's also significant because of its content. The Lincoln Company and other race film companies were aspiring to provide Black audiences with a range of Black characters that they could enjoy watching. Characters that thought about things and had rich internal lives. In the surviving clip of the film that Kadu identified, Johnson is in a sort of thought bubble of the character Clara, played by Beulah Hall. And that clip is pretty funny, too, because right? it's like she's imagining him like flirting with this other woman. And, you know, she didn't know she really liked him that much before. But then at that moment, you see her, the light bulb goes off and she's like, oh, you know, I, I think I like this guy. I spoke with Kara Kadu recently about the significance of Noble Johnson's career. He was the only Black actor in the silent era to star as a dramatic lead in a film the 1916 Universal movie, The Lady from the Sea. And he was the first Black person to write a Hollywood film, The Indian's Lament, in 1917. But the success he found as an actor within the studio system may have sealed the fate of his Black independent Lincoln Motion Picture Company. This episode is really thinking about this overarching question of how the studio system in Hollywood dealt with racial identity and how they dealt with it at a time when across the board people were being typecast. So that meant that people of color would only figure into a very well-specified set of roles. And that set of roles was quite narrow. I wonder if you could share some of your thoughts on kind of generally the way that Hollywood, especially during that classical Hollywood era, sort of dealt with the issue of uh, racial identity. Well, looking through, you know, some of the old casting directories, you just see really clearly that race was defined in really simplistic ways on one hand, but then also ways that are so different and foreign to us today, right? And so, you know, there's all these different categories when you see in the casting directories, actors of color, right? Extras usually. And then you see Groups of actors that are in this category that are, I think they're sometimes described as like ethnic or ethnic others or extras. And there's a lot of people in there that are actually white, but who often play these different kinds of roles, you know, in blackface and yellowface. And, and a lot of them, especially in that early period of sound, are also playing like 
monsters and uh, right. demons and werewolves and other kinds of things on screen. That's fascinating in itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's all like a different kind of character, right? It's, it's like a werewolf or uh, an Asian person, right? We have an Academy Players directory on display. It's a directory from 1937. And Noble Johnson is featured in that directory. And he's included among the white actors at a time when the directory was really rigidly racially segregated. And could you talk a little bit about like what that tells us about the roles that were open to Noble Johnson? He is such a fascinating and kind of liminal figure when we look at the ways that race was being policed during this time. Well, when Noble started his career, he identified himself as Black. But when he went out there for roles, he was often made to kind of make himself over in all this makeup and this, these wigs, crepe hair, prosthetics, to make himself look like Hollywood's idea of what a Black person should appear like. And so increasingly, he really started to try to teach himself how to play different kinds of roles to kind of expand the opportunities that were open to him. And he was childhood friends with Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney was also a famous actor and pioneering makeup artist. He was known for his roles in silent horror films like The Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So it's probable that Chaney kind of gave him some hints and tips about you know, how he could make himself over and put makeup on and all that kind of stuff to look like different racial parts. What an amazing relationship to think about, too. They both were from Colorado Springs, right? Yeah, like right across the fields from one another. They grew up and then found themselves both at Universal City in 1915. So it's pretty remarkable. My conversation with Indiana University cinema and media studies scholar Kara Cadu continues after the break. We're back in conversation with scholar Kara Cadu. I got to know Noble Johnson's story when I was doing research in his brother's collection of papers that's at UCLA fascinating archive of material for anyone who's interested in the history of early African-American filmmaking. His brother, George P. Johnson, was really active in booking and distributing the films of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company that Noble Johnson had founded. This is one of those early Black film companies that was so dedicated to making uplifting films with identifiable, even aspirational Black characters for segregated Black audiences. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between Noble Johnson and George Johnson and how the work they were trying to do as race men and as makers of race movies got complicated as Noble Johnson was developing his Hollywood career? So on one hand, Noble is playing all of these Black leads in the Lincoln Motion Picture Company films. But in Hollywood at Universal, where he was working as a contract actor, he's playing you know Native Americans, he's playing... Asians, he's playing Mexicans, and very rarely is he playing Black characters. And if he does, they're like Black African characters. And so he's put in these roles at Universal. And once Universal starts to notice that he is also kind of advertising himself out there as this representative of the Black race, that really kind of complicates 
Universal's ability to market and to advertise him as all these different kinds of racial types. And it really makes it dangerous for Universal in, in their minds and in terms of their markets, showing him on screen with white women. And so once Noble quits the Lincoln Company, right, he kind of goes on this path of never really refusing his blackness in terms of telling people, you know, I'm white. He never passed in that kind of way, but he also just refused to talk about his race altogether. Whereas his brother goes on and he becomes, you know, what we know is like a race man, right? Representing the race. He has the Pacific Coast News Bureau, which distributes stories about black achievements and about setbacks and discrimination. So he's really focused on representing blackness, whereas Noble takes a really different kind of path. Another really interesting aspect of the Johnson Brothers story is that they're from the West. George P. Johnson really set up shop in Omaha, Nebraska, right? And Westerns were a key component of the films that Noble Johnson made, both for the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, but also for Universal. And I just would love to hear you talk about how Noble Johnson's star persona drew on a certain kind of masculinity that we associate with the Western. Yeah, definitely. I mean, before he went to Hollywood, he was a cowboy. And oftentimes when we think about Westerns, we think about the Westerns of Hollywood cinema, right? These places where you don't see many Black Americans, you don't see many Asians. But the real West was really different, right? And, you know, about 20% of, of the cowboys in the American West were Black. Black men were the horsemen, the drivers, the jockeys, you know, of the 19th and early 20th century. And Noble was just an extraordinary horseman. He had a ranch. He was raised by a champion driver who did harness racing. And so when he got to Hollywood, he had this extraordinary set of skills that were really in demand. But the genre, of course, in Hollywood sees cowboys not as Black people. And so that kind of really is challenging to him because he sees himself as a Westerner, right? He even names the company that he forms after the Lincoln, um, the, you know, the Western Photoplay Company, because he sees himself as a cowboy and as a person who represents the West. Let's talk about why Noble Johnson left the Lincoln Motion Picture Company and what happened in his career immediately after that. Well, he left the company in 1918, and we don't know exactly why he left, but we know a lot of the factors that contributed to it. One thing that his brothers told us is that some of the white theater owners had seen posters of Noble Johnson on the theaters of their competitors, right? Showing him as a star of these films, and they'd gotten upset about it because it was taking business away from them. And so they had complained to Universal and Universal had called Noble on the carpet and, you know, was basically like, are you going to continue with that work or are you going to continue with our work? But I should say that that only became a problem when there was complaints because before Universal definitely knew what was happening. The former general manager, when they were trying to file their incorporation papers, he did the estimate on how much the company was worth. And they knew about it and they liked it because people were going to Universal Films. They were going 
to Noble's films because he was a Black star and they wanted to see him, even though he wasn't the star in the traditional sense of those productions all the time. So yeah, it wasn't an issue until then. Another thing that happened right around that time was that Noble got married (laughs) and he got married to a white woman. And that was taboo. It was actually illegal in California, according to the state's anti-miscegenation laws. And also, you know, increasingly actors, you know, their private lives become something that the studios are really concerned about. And so hiding that fact became a pretty kind of urgent concern for Noble. And so all these things are happening. Running your own distribution system is very expensive. The big Hollywood companies that were doing the same thing, they were struggling, right? And a lot of them, they don't survive, right? The majority of companies don't survive. And the Lincoln was also struggling financially, even though their films were really popular. It was just really hard to make a profit off of the productions and especially enough profit that they could kind of continue making more productions. Sure. And without their big star, what the selling point could be for those films was really challenging for them. So what did Noble Johnson do? Because when you look him up, his filmography is so extensive. Let's talk about how his career evolved post-Lincoln Motion Picture Company. He went on and he became known for being a character actor, playing all sorts of different roles. And his career, it crosses 1929, so he moves into the sound era, which a lot of actors, their careers ended at that point. And it continues on through the 30s and 40s and and really into the 50s. So he has one of the longest careers of really any Hollywood actor, right? And it's, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts about like what some of the standout roles Noble Johnson played are for you. I mean, I certainly think a lot about the role he played in King Kong as the sort of native Jungle King. What's that? He says, look at the golden woman. Yeah, blondes are scarce around here. Mora Mapakeno. Kong War Bisa. Kao Bisa or Kong. It's such a, a an incredible role because I think he brings a lot into it that we don't necessarily know about. You know, he did his own makeup most of the time. He did it for the Ghostbreakers. And you see, you know, on the production sheets that they saved money on a a makeup artist, right? And that's like extraordinary makeup that he does in that film. And I think the same thing with King Kong, right? I think he is drawing on all of these other roles and really creating this character type that kind of gives him a form of authorship in a way, even though his character's In many ways, you know, we would see them as problematic today. You know, they're always these like standout. You don't forget, you don't forget seeing him on screen. He's just got this charisma and this ability to, to kind of take over whatever scene he's in. He's in the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments with Cecil B. DeMille. And that film, he's painted head to toe in bronze paint. And it's just incredible in the scene when he brings the Pharaoh's son up the stairs. And as you were talking about him in bronze, you know, he has such a a regal quality and um, just statuesque. I think about somebody like Woody Strode, actually, as someone who 
strikes a similar kind of physical presence to Noble Johnson, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think about Woody Strode quite a bit because, I, you know, he kind of becomes a popular figure on screen and, and he's, you know, cast by John Ford, who also worked with Noble Johnson. And I think he fills this niche that Noble Johnson created, right? And then Woody Strode steps in and, and you see a succession of other actors who fill this type of role in Hollywood, really in, until today, you could even say, I don't know, The Rock. <laughs> sure. I can see the line from Noble Johnson to The Rock for sure. So, you know, when you think about Noble Johnson's legacy, I mean, how would you describe it? You were just kind of getting to that when you were saying that you can see echoes of his presence. He created so many of the character types that we're familiar with today. And those didn't emerge at this moment where those types were kind of associated with these certain kinds of stereotypes. They were often new and really different. And he would make these amalgamations of different kinds of makeup styles and clothing or no clothing, right? All sorts of things like that, that I think really shaped a lot of these aesthetics that we associate with particular kinds of roles. And, you know, he was just an extraordinary actor. I mean, he changed the direction of his career so many times, right? He starts out in race films and then he's playing these different character actors in the 1930s during the big classical horror cycle. He's playing all different kinds of monster roles. And then later in his career, he really kind of embraces comedy. And, you know, he's he's playing all sorts of silly, funny kinds of characters, often, you know, using the kind of strong man kind of thing who's, you know, actually very sensitive or silly or something else. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger starts making comedies, right? Like <laughs> from action to comedy. Yeah. And when we think about him playing that wide range of racial and ethnic characters, uh, it really seems as though he embraced that. Like he really wanted to show that he had the versatility and that he wasn't going to let the kinds of restrictions on people's perceptions on what blackness was or what a somebody who is coded as black would have the ability to do. Could you talk about sort of how that also played itself out in his personal life? Because there too, he was not going to be restricted in the ways that people understood racial identity. He actually was living a life that questioned those boundaries. I mean, he just lived his life refusing to be put into other people's boxes throughout his life. You see this kind of manifested in so many different aspects. One thing that you'll see if you look at all the different places that he lived throughout his life, and this is a time, right, when there's residential segregation, you know, through racial covenants, through redlining, and you know, when they're making these maps, so there's, there's these gray areas in between. And if you look at all the different places where Noble lived in his life, he finds those places and he goes and he lives literally in these gray areas, you know, a blurry area that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily just the ordinance fit this space or not. And he goes there and he finds it and he, and he lives there. And it happens over and over and over again. It's really reflective of the same thing that he does when he's in, in Hollywood. He finds these spaces and he just, he, he makes himself at home there. 
That was Indiana University cinema and media studies scholar Kara Kadu. That is it for this episode of the Academy Museum Podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. Check out our performance gallery to learn more about the history of casting. For more about early black filmmakers like Noble Johnson, be sure to visit our landmark exhibition, Regeneration, Black Cinema, 1898 to 1971. Academy Museum Podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Krokmal is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Monica Bushman. Our other producer is Victoria Alejandro. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.